In a 2021 Pew Research survey about views about the afterlife, 73% of Americans said that they believe in the existence of heaven, while another 7% said they believed in some sort of afterlife, whether it's incarnation or a person's energy being absorbed into the universe or whatever. Friends, if that survey is correct, 80% of people who live around us believe that there's some sort of existence after death, that death isn't the end. Whether their view of life after death is shaped by the Bible or not, human beings seem to innately sense that eternity is stamped upon our very souls. Even Hollywood taps into people's hope for life after death. Take two recent examples. In NBC's The Good Place, a woman wakes up in the afterlife and discovers she's in a utopian paradise called The Good Place, but soon finds out that there's been a mistake. She doesn't belong there. In Amazon Prime's upload, people can pay to have their consciousness uploaded into a virtual afterlife upon their death in the real world. The uploaded live in a sprawling luxury resort called Lakeview, while friends and family of the deceased don VR goggles and interact with those living in Lakeview. I'm not endorsing those shows. I'm simply making the point that even in our secular society, people long to live forever. What about you? How much thought do you give to what happens after you die? I think many people simply try to push away thoughts of death as far away as they can because of a fear of the unknown, of hopelessness. Then they try to escape from those fears by, by dulling them with the best pleasures or comforts this life has to offer. Friends, if you're a Christian, I hope that you think about life after death a lot since Christianity by nature is fueled by future hope through Christ. But even for believers, maybe you admit that there are times when you doubt whether eternal life is true and real. When you, when you close your eyes in death, will they really open to a world of eternal joy? Can you really take to the bank the New Testament's promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Is there really, is there any possibility that, that death isn't, is in fact the end? Friends, this is the very topic put to Jesus by the religious skeptics of his day in the final days before his crucifixion. They tried to trip him up on the realities of life after death. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 22 this morning. Matthew 22 is where we'll be. Friends, if you didn't make it to church with a Bible this morning, there are Bibles scattered in the racks of the, of the seats in front of you. Grab one of those black Bibles, turn it to page 828. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, well, we would love for you to take that Bible home and make it your own. Matthew 22, again, page 828. Friends, let's remember the context. Jesus is in Jerusalem, smack dab in the middle of Holy Week. And it's the week of his betrayal, suffering, death, and resurrection. Ever since Jesus arrived in the city and then cleansed the temple of the commerce and self-interest that had defiled it, the religious leaders of Israel came out against them. They tried to publicly discredit Jesus, to trap him, to ultimately take him down. If you remember from last week, the 
Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap Jesus on a question about his allegiance to Caesar and the Roman government. (laughs) But instead of humiliating Jesus, this entourage left marveling at his wisdom that we ought to honor our government but save our worship for God alone. That's where we pick up the story in verse 23. Verse 23, yet another group comes out against Jesus. Let's read together verses 23 all the way down to verse 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. And each week I try to summarize the main idea, the the central point of the biblical text and make that main idea the central point of the sermon. And so here it is for Matthew 22, 23 to 33. Here's what I believe the Lord wants us to take away. Stake your hope of life after death on the power of God and the word of God. Friends, stake your hope of life after death on the power of God and the Word of God. We're going to look at verses 23 to 28 this morning as a kind of long introduction to the main body of the sermon. My outline today is drawn from Jesus' reply to the Sadducees' riddle in verses 29 to 32 and simply, simply breaks apart the main idea into two sections. Number one, stake your hope On the power of God, we see that in verses 29 and 30. Number two, stake your hope on the word of God, verses 29 and then in 31 and 32. Stake your life, your hope on the power and word of God. Beloved, I pray today that God's word might give you confidence in the future that awaits all those united to King Jesus by faith and that you would indeed rest everything that you are and everything you hope for upon the resurrecting power and word of the Lord. In verse 23, if you look at it, Matthew writes that no sooner had the Pharisees and Herodians departed, another entourage of enemy combatants arrived on the scene. And this time it wasn't the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees were the other Jewish sect that comprised the, the Sanhedrin, the council of Israel's religious leaders along with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very much the sect of the common people, while the Sadducees were known to be from Israel's aristocracy. They were the sophisticated, the elite class. 
Uh, the Sadducees occupied the places of power in the temple in Jerusalem. You know, the Pharisees, they often went beyond Scripture in imposing man-made rules and regulations that choked out a heart of true worship. But at least the Pharisees took God's word seriously. They were theologically conservative. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the theological liberals of their day. Their belief set fell short of Scripture because they had rejected its complete authority. Matthew notes a key tenet of their belief system in verse 23. See it? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. You might be thinking, well, of course they didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus hadn't died yet. How could they believe in it? But here, friends, Matthew's not talking about Jesus' resurrection. He's talking about the Jewish hope and the Bible's teaching about the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. The day when all those who die will be raised up to the judgment and ushered into the eternal destiny. He's talking about the resurrection state of life after death. We won't take time to read it this morning, but Acts 23, 6 and following, if you just want to make a note, Acts 23, 6 and following notes that the Sadducees did not just reject the future resurrection. They also rejected the idea of the angelic realm and, of course, the eternality of the human soul. The Sadducees believe that when a person dies, their soul dies right along with their body. Honestly, friends, these dudes are, are similar to modern-day skeptics or maybe even mainline Protestants who believe in a tiny kernel of what the Bible teaches so long as it suits them, but who, for the most part, have thrown away parts of the Bible that are unpalatable to their intellectual or moral tastes. You might think, well, well, how in the world then did the, did the Sadducees get to that position when, man, the Old Testament is just full of Scripture about the coming resurrection? Good question. Believe it or not, the, the Sadducees insisted that every single one of their theological and moral positions must find support in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Because, in their opinion, the Torah doesn't explicitly teach the coming resurrection at the end of the age. They just ignored the Psalms and prophets' scripture about the resurrection of the dead. They simply eliminated it right from their theology. Friends, just in case you need help keeping track of which Jewish sect is which, there's just very one simple way to keep track of that. Once you hear it, you'll, you'll never forget just remember that because the Sadducees didn't believe in the coming resurrection, they were sad, you see. And find me after the service. That was free. But here's the scene. The theologically conservative, unbelieving Pharisees exit the ring, but they tag in their theological liberal counterparts, the Sadducees. Although they were at opposite ends of the theological spectrum in ancient Israel, they shared a common purpose. They aimed to discredit and destroy Jesus. The Sadducees arrive on the scene and decide, well, but they're just going to try to stump Jesus with a riddle, make him look stupid. Look at verse 24. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What in the world are these guys talking about? I mean, well, not surprisingly, friends, they're referencing a very specific part of the Torah in the Mosaic Law found in Deuteronomy 25. 
You might just hold your finger in Matthew, turn back to Deuteronomy 25. That's on page 166 of the Bible in your seat. Deuteronomy 25. The opening verses of Deuteronomy 25 detail what, what's supposed to happen in an Israelite family when a husband dies and the couple didn't have children. Okay? Look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Friends, the formal name for this practice is leveret marriage. The Latin word levere means husband's brother. That's where you get the term leveret. The whole idea, it feels foreign and weird to us, doesn't it? Almost offensive in our Western independent mindset. But God put these leveret laws in place in ancient Israel to, to, first of all, provide security to a bereaved widow, to lessen the stigma surrounding her barrenness. Leveret marriage also protected the dead husband's property within his family. As the text says, it ensured that the legacy of his name would be preserved through a, a close relative taking the dead man's wife and trying to bear children to preserve his name. Friends, the, probably the most famous example of leveret marriage in the Bible is in Ruth 4, where Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer and husband to a widowed Moabite woman named Ruth. And of course, we know that Boaz and Ruth turned out to be the great-grandparents of David, the great king of Israel, and so that in the ancestral line of Jesus himself is a leveret marriage. Friends, why do you think that the Sadducees drew up this weird, nuanced, hypothetical case about this woman's experience with leveret marriage? Well, I think the clear answer is they're just trying to mock and openly ridicule the doctrine of the future resurrection of the dead that Jesus believed and taught. Look at verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. It does make you wonder what this wife was up to. They're all seven husbands. You can see right off the bat how utterly absurd this example is. The Sadducees are operating in the ridiculous. How do I know? Well, think about it. How many husbands did they really need in their, in their hypothetical case study to get at Jesus' theology of the resurrection as it pertains to marriage? How many husbands did they really need? Two. But instead, they just pile them on, one after the other. Not two, not three, not even five or six. What about the woman, Jesus, who legitimately, biblically had seven husbands? Whose husband will she have in the resurrection? You've heard of seven brides for seven brothers? This is one bride for seven brothers, right? This is the ancient story, right? Put it into a musical. The whole thing is not serious. The Sadducees are not asking Jesus a good faith question. They're trying to make his teaching look silly. They're not interested in learning from him. They're trying to humiliate him. Perhaps they even knew Jesus' teaching that marriage is the union 
for a lifetime of one man and one woman. So if a wife had multiple husbands during her earthly life, then would she be married to them all in heaven? Are you an eternity polygamist, Jesus? How scandalous. And if not, whose wife of the seven will she be? Would she just go with the original husband, Jesus? Or maybe she'll just pick her favorite? Maybe she'll ask an angel or Moses himself to choose for her. You can just imagine the Sadducees sneering ridicule as they hurled this ridiculous example Jesus' way. He had to choose between monogamous marriage on the one hand and his theology of the resurrection on the other. It looks like a no-win scenario. Friends, likewise today, there are many people around you who disguise their sneering rejection of Jesus and the Bible with what they think are clever questions. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Heard that one? Could God create a a square triangle? Gotcha, right? It's really nothing more than an intellectual defense mechanism to keep them from dealing seriously with the claims of Jesus on their life, to investigate the scripture for themselves. Friends, let me encourage you, when you are dealing with a skeptic, an unbeliever like that, don't get distracted or frustrated by those type of absurd questions. Keep coming back to the main thing. Okay. Make sure this, the conversation stays tethered to the gospel, to the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. Make them deal with the scriptures that demonstrate who Jesus is and what he's done. Friends, giving what you think are the right answers to those type of nonsense questions will not be what changes someone's heart and mind about Christ. But coming to grips with Jesus' resurrection from the dead will if God so chooses. As Yaroslav Pelikan wrote, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. But if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. If Jesus really did walk out of his tomb on the third day, then all of it must be true. Jesus is Lord. He unlocked eternity's door by conquering death. The Bible must be believed. But if he didn't rise from the dead, the whole thing's a myth. And we have no hope beyond the grave. Beloved, in your evangelism, keep the main thing, the main thing. The Sadducees think they've outsmarted Jesus, but just like with the Pharisees and the Herodians earlier that day, Jesus just swats it away like it's nothing. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. (laughs) I love this. You know, without living back then, it's hard to understand just how shocking Jesus' words must have been to those religious elites. You're wrong. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. You may be the so-called experts, but you don't know the scriptures and you don't know God's power. It's like, be like us saying McDonald's doesn't know anything about fast food. UPS doesn't know anything about shipping. Phoenicians don't know anything about outdoor heat, okay? Jesus throws the gauntlet down. Not this morning. It's a little cold this morning. Jesus throws the gauntlet down. Apparently, friends, right doctrine is really important. Sound doctrine is not a distraction from your relationship with Jesus. The difference between right and wrong on certain gospel doctrines is the difference between heaven and hell. 
so long as you embrace the truth with a heart that submits to the lordship of Jesus. Friends, sound doctrine embraced by faith fuels the Christian life. Sound doctrine embraced by faith fuels the Christian life. If you're not growing in your understanding of doctrine, friends, you're not growing. Jesus wants us to put our roots down deep in the soil of the Bible and its teaching. So here again, Jesus gives two biblical and theological reasons why the Sadducees' riddle was just cracked with holes. He says, first, you don't know the Scriptures. means the Old Testament Scriptures. And then he says, neither do you know the power of God. Sadducees, if you just read your Bible, you would know that a new world of eternal life awaits the people of God. That eternal death awaits the wicked after the judgment. If you truly grappled with the awesomeness of God's power, you'd know that it's nothing for him to cause the dead to, to rise again. Friends, in verses 30 to 32, what Jesus is doing is merely explaining verse 29. Okay? Only he explains these categories in reverse order. So in verse 29, Jesus says, you don't know, one, the Bible, or two, the power of God. And then he says, in essence, let me tell you first about the power, and then I'll prove the case from the Bible. That's what's going on. Okay. All of what I've talked about so far is the long lead up to Jesus' response in the first point of the outline. Number one, stake your hope on the power of God. Stake your hope on the power of God. You might say, John, I don't see anything from Jesus here about staking your hope on God's power or word. You're right, it doesn't say that explicitly. But friends, there's no question that what Jesus is doing in his response to the Sadducees is making a forceful point. And here's what he's saying. The doctrine of the coming resurrection of the dead is true. You can take it to the bank. You ought not to reject God's power or his word, Sadducees, because to discount those things is to, ab to abandon the true realities on which everything rests. And since there really is a coming resurrection and the existence that follows, the only choice that we have, therefore, is to stake our life upon God's power to raise the dead to life. His promises and his word that promise our future hope and guarantee it. Prince Jesus is not embarrassed. You realize that. Jesus is not embarrassed in the slightest by the truth of the coming resurrection and the world to come, and neither should we be. We live now for the world then. We stake our very life upon these truths as we follow Jesus all the way home. Jesus explains God's power in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Many have taken these words from Jesus and tried to make comparisons between those who die and go to heaven and to angels. It's led to a lot of bad assumptions. Maybe you've heard well-intentioned people say about someone who passed away, uh, heaven just gained another angel. And that's sweet. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not equivocating uh, humanity's eternal existence in heaven with that of angels. His point is simple. Angels in heaven aren't married. Neither are those in the resurrection life. Jesus isn't saying that in eternity, humans, we just kind of lose all biological distinctions. 
because that must be how angels are. And we won't be able to recognize each other as a man or a woman. No, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is drawing our attention, friends, listen, to the massive discontinuity between this age and the age to come. He's pointing to the glorious difference between this old world of sin and death and the new world of perfection and life. If we're not careful, it'd be easy to get confused because on the one hand, there's great continuity, isn't there, between our existence in this age and in the one in the age to come. The scripture tells us, friends, that our eternal future is not in some distant land in the sky. But the re recreation of this cosmos, heaven, friends, is coming to earth. We're going to live in a new world with our own resurrected bodies, glorified through the power of King Jesus, the resurrected one. Heaven's not going to be some disembodied experience of floating on a cloud and strumming a harp. It's not some mystical fairy tale land. <laughs> friends, when we live in a new heavens and new earth, we're going to dwell in an actual physical paradise of untold beauty and goodness that you can touch and feel and see and smell and hear. Our resurrected bodies will be free of suffering and decay. Can you imagine? We will worship and sing and work and play and laugh and live together all to the glory of God. Turn the page. Friends, there is great continuity between life now and life then. But there is also enormous discontinuity, and that's what this verse highlights. Jesus is saying, so great is God's power. So great is God's power that what he is preparing is in some ways nothing like today's world. It will be infinitely better and more satisfying and more glorious. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul compares our existence now with the one in the life to come by comparing a planted seed that must die in the dirt before it blooms into a new existence. He writes this in verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There it is. Paul echoes Jesus. God's power is so great that what awaits us in glory cannot be properly explained or imagined here. Wouldn't it be like a baby in utero trying to imagine a sunset at the Grand Canyon? Just can't do it. Friends, we are not fit right now to comprehend all the details of how God's power, along with his infinite goodness and grace and beauty, will fashion the new creation and even our bodies that will live in it. But because God will dwell with us, you'd better believe it will be mind-blowingly awesome. Perhaps my favorite quote on death and resurrection is the poet George Herbert's reflection on 1 Corinthians 15. Herbert wrote, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has turned him into a gardener. Beloved, take heart. Take heart. God and his power will without fail raise up all those who die in Christ. The end of our earthly life is a mere gateway into an infinitely more glorious life to come. And think of it this way. If God spoke the original creation 
out of nothing, if he spoke it into existence out of nothing by the mere word of his power, then friends, surely it is nothing for him to call a new resurrected creation by that same power into existence. Do not fear, beloved. Your eternal future rests on the shoulders of the Almighty. The redemption that he started, he will not fail to complete. Is your body wearing down? And suffering? Does death seem to loom larger and larger in the windshield of your life? Put your trust in the power of God to raise you up on the last day. Friends, are you allured by false hopes and escapes from reality that things like drunkenness and sexual sin offer? Well, friends, live for the greater joys that await you. Kill your sin through the power of God's future grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. Deaden the allure through future hope. Is your hope in the resurrection of the dead compelling you, friend, to share the gospel with those who have no hope? Friend, staking your hope on God's resurrecting power is not theoretical theology. It's deeply practical you simply cannot live the Christian life faithfully without being daily armed with our glorious hope. RGC family, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, you can press on with confidence. We're almost home. Let me ask you, why isn't there marriage in the age to come? I've literally had people in premarital counseling say things like, man, that kind of makes me sad to think that I won't be married to my spouse in heaven. And I, and I understand why someone would say that. I didn't slap their hand, you know, with a chiding pastoral exhortation, hope in the power of God. No. For many of us, marriage is the deepest experience of joy and pleasure and companionship that we will ever know on earth. It's unthinkable to imagine a world in which our spouse is there, but we're not married to them. That seems like less joy, not more joy. Like it's a joy subtraction, not joy addition. What's up with that? Well, for one, marriage is not necessary in the age to come because death will have died forever. Marriage isn't necessary because procreation isn't necessary. But beyond that, Jesus is subtly making the point to the Sadducees that there is not marriage in the resurrection. Because marriage was designed from the beginning to be an earthly signpost of heavenly realities. Friends, earthly marriage is, is simply a shadow of the spiritual reality that will be perfectly fulfilled when Jesus takes his bride. God designed marriage to picture God's eternal love for his own through Christ. He never intended marriage to be ultimate or to be an end of itself. Marriage is a show window so that we might display to the watching world just how deep the self-giving love of Christ is for his church, as well as the church's loving submission to Jesus. Friends, don't you see it? The love and intimacy that you enjoy in marriage with a human partner, the love and intimacy that you enjoy now with your spouse, it will seem like a shallow pool when we are brought into the bottomless ocean 
of God's eternal love in Christ by his spirit. Everything that you love about marriage now will be multiplied infinitely and fulfilled by your marriage to God himself. There is no need for the signpost when you've reached the destination. Will not pine after the faint and flickering shadows of love when we're ushered into the fullest reality that we could ever imagine. Single brothers and sisters, Jesus' words should encourage you. Marriage is not ultimate. Single friend, if you never get married in this life, you will lack nothing of the eternal joy that God has prepared for you in Christ. Nothing. Marriage is not the place where true and lasting satisfaction is found. Just ask around. It's fine and good to desire marriage as a gift from the Lord, but to bow to it as a God that will fulfill your deepest longings is totally out of place. It's not meant by God to bear the worship of your soul. If the Lord in his providence, friend, doesn't ordain marriage for you in this life, you're not less than in the kingdom of God. Take solace, dear brothers and sisters, that the king of the kingdom himself never married when he lived and ministered here on earth. You might say that he too awaits his marriage. And when Christ Jesus weds us to himself, the love and intimacy that we share in our union with him, it's going to be universalized in flawless harmony of relationships with one another. We will lack nothing spiritually, and that means we will lack nothing relationally. God in his power will raise us up to a new existence in which the loneliness and relational brokenness that's inherent to life in this sin-cursed world is going to seem like a distant memory. We will know and be known by God along with all his people. Redeeming Grace Church family, let's not be the type of congregation that denigrates marriage to exalt singleness, but neither let's be the type of church that denigrates singleness to exalt marriage. The local church, friends, is not merely a family of marriages or a family of families. We are the family of God. We're covenanted together to help people of all life circumstances and stages, married and single, old and young, adults and kids, to help them all reach heaven safely. We disciple all together until King Jesus calls us home. Stake your hope on the power of God. Number two, stake your hope on the word of God. Stake your hope on the word of God. When Jesus says in verse 29 that the Sadducees don't know the scriptures, there's just no question what he's doing. He means that in ignoring God's unfolding revelation after the Torah, the Sadducees missed scripture after scripture after scripture that promised humanity's victory over death and the coming resurrection. I think we often think of the, the resurrection as a kind of a New Testament idea because we understand it was secured for us through the death and resurrection of Christ. But friend, just listen for a moment to Old Testament truth about the coming resurrection that the Sadducees had missed. Let these promises just wash over you and encourage you. Job 19, 25, and 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. 
Hosea 13, 14. God says through Hosea, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, from the realm of the dead. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Maybe the most explicit one in Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Friends, can you see now why Jesus says, Sadducees, you just don't know the word of God. The Old Testament is chock full of resurrection hope that they in their unbelief had ignored. And yet notice, friends, notice what Jesus does to win the day. Jesus didn't quote any of those Old Testament passages that I just read to make his point. Why do you think that was? They're the most explicit resurrection hope passages in the, in the, in the Old Testament. Why didn't Jesus quote one of them? What have we already learned about the Sadducees? They didn't accept the rest of the Scripture. They wanted to be in the Torah. And so Jesus meets the Sadducees right where they're at. In his great wisdom, he decides to prove their ignorance of the Scripture about the resurrection from the Pentateuch itself. Look at verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus quotes here from the passage we read earlier in the service from Exodus 3. Yahweh, the covenant Lord, appears to Moses on Mount Horeb in the flame of a burning bush. And how did God describe himself on that day to Moses from the bush? He described himself in terms of his relationship with the patriarchs who had long since died. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, just a really quick aside. Friends, if you ever doubt Jesus' commitment to the inerrancy and authority of the Old Testament Scripture, notice what he said to the Sadducees. Have you not read what was said to you by God? He didn't say what was said to Moses by God. He said to you. Friends, the inscripturated word of God is just as real and authoritative as his audible voice. In all the scripture, we hear the voice of God speaking to us just as clear as if he spoke to us from the flame. Aside over, okay? You might wonder to yourself, well, Jesus' point here seems like really technical. Like, I'm not, I'm not tracking about how he's pulling that from Exodus 3 to make his point. Like, why did he pull this random verse from the Torah to prove his point about the resurrection? Well, let's just think about it for a moment, okay? Gather ourselves. Here we go. What did God tell Moses at the bush? He essentially said, I'm the God of the patriarchs. Friends, the burning bush is 400 years or more after the deaths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so how is it that, that bringing up the names of these dead guys proves the resurrection? Well, let's re recall what's happening in Exodus 3. God is calling Moses to do the humanly impossible. Moses, I want you to deliver my people from their slavery to the world's most dominant superpower in Egypt. I'm going to be with you, though. You can trust me, is what he's saying. But how? How can Moses, no, God is going to keep his word. <laughs> the Lord essentially says, of course you can trust me. 
I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Say, wait a second, how does that prove anything? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead in Moses' day, and God's great promises seemed unfulfilled. They never inherited the land. They never saw their offspring be as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. But friend, do you see what God is doing? He's saying not even death itself can get in the way of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob receiving his promises. He says, I am still in covenant with them. Why? Well, presumably because their spirits still live in heaven with me. I am their God, even now, Moses. And friends, lest you think that Jesus pulled out just some kind of new, inventive way of understanding the Bible, he didn't. This is precisely how the patriarchs themselves understood the death-defeating promises of God. Maybe you remember when we studied Genesis together, Genesis 22, Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, the son of promise at the Lord's command. How in the world could a father do that? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham believed that if God had commanded him to kill Isaac, then God would raise Isaac from the dead. God would keep his word even if he had to overturn death itself. Or think about Joseph at the end of Genesis. Before Joseph died in Egypt, he told his family, hey, when God takes you back to the promised land and you leave this place, don't you dare leave my bones here. You take them back to Canaan. I want to be buried in the land of promise. Beloved, why would Joseph give a rip where he was buried if he thought death was the end of the promise? Because Joseph believed God promised him that he would dwell in a land with God. And so he asked that his bones be taken back there because he assumes that God will raise him to new life in the land. Death cannot stop cannot thwart, cannot overturn God's promises. All those who died trusting in the salvation promises in the Old Testament yet live with God in spirit and they await the resurrection of their bodies at the end of the age. Friends, Jesus quotes this text to the Sadducees because there is a resurrection to come and all those in covenant with the Lord will receive what he promised. That's his point. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Say, John, how can I be so sure? How can I be so confident that God will keep his word to me? I give him my life. If I stake everything I have upon him, how can I be confident? Friends, you can stake your life upon the word of God because Jesus didn't just quote God's word about the resurrection. He proved God's word is true and reliable by his own mighty resurrection from the dead. Jesus didn't stop with platitudes about death and resurrection. He willingly plunged himself into the abyss of death and rose up on the other side victorious. Friends, although he had done nothing to deserve God's judgment, he endured the judgment of death in the place of those of us who did, all of us who did. He said, let their judgment, let their death, eternal death fall on me. Let me die so they might live. And then on the third day, death's cold, icy grip released its hold on the king. Death could not hold the innocent one. 
The tomb cracked open by the mighty power of the king who paid the price for all those who would turn from the rebellion and sin against God and entrust themselves to him. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to fear the grave. You understand that, right? That's the message of the Bible. You do not have to face a hopeless eternity and therefore live a hopeless life now. Friends, we Christians don't believe in and put our trust in pie-in-the-sky fairy tales. Christianity is the message of a king who stepped into time and history to rescue us. He lived the life that you and I failed to live before God. And then he died the death, the eternal death that we deserve for that failed and sinful life. And he rose in triumph over the grave to prove the price is paid forever. There's no amount of self-atoning good deeds or best intentions can break death's power over you. You're not morally strong enough to unchain yourself from your bondage to death. You need someone to do it for you. Good news of the gospel of Jesus is if you simply turn from your sin and rebellion and trust fully in Christ the King, his victory over death will be your own. You will rise one day in him. See, the story of Christmas we sang about this morning, friends, that story of Jesus' birth is aimed at resurrection. Did you hear it in Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king. John Ryland was a British Baptist pastor in the 18th century. Ryland spoke these words, the graveside service of his friend, Andrew Gifford. And with this, we close. Listen to these words from Ryland. Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment, thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, you people of God, you surrounding spectators, prepare Prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be all nothing but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. Our God is not the God of the dead, beloved, but of the living. Because of that truth, we stake our hope in his great power and his great word. Because Christ rose never to die again, so shall we. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning specifically for those who came in this morning hopeless or beleaguered or discouraged. Lord, I pray that your word this morning would have lifted their eyes, lifted their eyes to our only living hope. 
Oh, Lord, may we lift our eyes from the shadows, from the darkness of this world to see the dawn of the coming day. Oh, Lord, let us not be enamored with anything that would take our hearts and our minds away from setting our hope on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, there's a reason the apostles could cry out, Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. They knew. They knew that what's await, what awaits us so far surpasses any joy we could ever imagine. Where sin and suffering is removed and we live with Christ, our King, forever. Oh, Lord, may we be a people here at Redeeming Grace Church that reflect that coming day, that sets our hopes fully on the age to come. And that all that you have prepared for us begins to fuel glad hearts of love and joy and steadfastness and patience and endurance even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.